You're listening to the Fanfic Maverick Podcast, the show where I talk to fanfiction writers about their work and the marvelous world of fanfiction. This show may contain adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. A quick note about this episode. We experienced electrical interference in some places that produced brief, high-pitched noises that sound a bit like an alien spacecraft. I did my best to filter them out, but you will still hear them in a few spots. So please be careful not to have the volume turned up too high if you're listening with headphones. And now, on to a brief reading. The following short paragraphs are from a fanfiction story called An Absence of Stars, written by today's guest fanfiction author, Mademoiselle Kurtz, also known on AO3 as The Knitting Jedi. It's baffling, this pull he feels towards him. Hard to understand. Fell brushes Crowley's face with his fingertips, feeling a hint of stubble, skin made cold and a little sticky by the salty breeze, only now beginning to warm. Fell puts his hands on Crowley's face in order to speed the process, and so he can tilt his head, there, at the right angle. If he thought he was in uncharted waters before, now he is lost at sea. He's in the doldrums without knowing where north is from here. Water. Water everywhere. No, he's not lost. At least, he's not alone. We were the first that ever burst into that silent sea. Crowley's lips taste like salt. His tongue, where it brushes gently against fells, tastes like whiskey and something smoky with a sweet aftertaste. That's a metaphor if you ever wanted one. This is the last rational thought Fell has for a while, and not a particularly witty one at that. To the north, south, east, and west, four corners of the world, Greetings from the wild, arid desert of the American Southwest. I'm your host, Chaos Blue, and this is the Fanfic Maverick Podcast. Our special guest fanfiction author for today is Mademoiselle Kurtz. Mademoiselle's username on AO3 is The Knitting Jedi, and they have been a member of AO3 since 2018. They have posted a total of 18 fanfiction stories for the following fandoms Night in the Woods. The Magnus Archive Podcast, Good Omens, and Critical Role. Mademoiselle lives with their dog Bianca and says that they've tried almost every craft under the sun. As you've probably guessed from their AO3 username, they love knitting and embroidery, which are their two main hobbies. Mademoiselle Kurtz, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great. Hi, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. We really appreciate you taking time out of your evening to come talk to us. So let's dive right into the episode. I'm so excited to talk to you. I'd like to start at the very beginning of people's fan fiction journeys. Can you tell us about the time that you discovered fan fiction for the first time? What was that like? How did it feel? Yes. So my first experience with fanfiction actually dates back to when I was like 12 or 13. 
And I used to hang out in an Italian Lord of the Rings theme forum. And uh, it wasn't like I didn't have many friends growing up, but I really found my people when the internet came around. I'm old enough to remember when the internet came around. And uh, it gave me a chance to go beyond the borders of my little town and meet uh, fellow nerds, you know. So the first time I heard about fanfic, it was when a couple of uh, users, of older users, older for me, they were like in their 20s, when I was 12, they found and translated for us a brilliant fic about Boromir not dying and having his own adventures. And uh, I remember that when, for some reason, they stopped translating that and I rolled up my sleeves and I started reading it in English. And I'm pretty sure that this was the first piece of fiction written in English that I've ever read in its original language. And so, yeah, it was a, it was a lot of the reading fan fiction. And Boromir was my favorite character. So it was great to have more of him. And that's my origin story. Oh, that's amazing. You know, Boromir is such an interesting character because his appearance in Lord of the Rings is short, comparatively speaking, to the year of the characters, but he's so complex with his background story and then with his actions and his inner turmoil, right? Where he's kind of fighting against his own, I don't know, better nature a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, and then he dies prematurely. I thought he was premature. And so there's so much more to say about Boromir. So I can totally see how people would be writing fan fiction stories based off of that character and trying to expand his character and his motivations and all of that good stuff. So that's so cool. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I've always had a theme for anti-heroes and villains, actually. So yeah, Boromir was, of course, was my favorite character. I'm so super interested in what you said about how you remember before the internet came out. And then after the internet came out, so that means that you were around for the early fandom days of the internet, right? Yeah, I wasn't really in any fandom, actually, after my brief Lord of the Rings uh, excursion. I don't know why. I just consumed media and not interacted really with any fandom until The Last Jedi came out, actually. And that's where I... When I started uh, reading uh, Star Wars fanfiction and where my nickname comes from. Oh, that makes so much sense. The Knitting Jedi. Yeah. <laughs> I love that, by the way. That's really cool. Thank you. Now, when you first started reading fanfiction, did you ever read off of other sites besides AO3? Like, do you remember the old live journal days or were you ever on fanfiction.net or other sites? I definitely read something off fanfiction.net but not enough to remember how it was like. AO3 has been my main uh, fanfiction experience, definitely. Most people I talk to would agree that AO3 is the superior platform anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my apologies to everyone out there that loves fanfiction.net and Wattpad. I know that there are lots of people that love those platforms too, and they are amazing as well. But, you know, I prefer AO3 and it sounds like you do too. So Yeah. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> That's good. Now, what inspired you to become a writer? So, writing has always been a thing I loved doing since I was a kid. And I kept writing through middle school and high school. And then I stopped for like 10 years. And then I started again with fanfiction. 
And I think that maybe it comes from being an only child and a very self-sufficient and introverted kid and, and person in general. But I've always lived inside my head. I've always loved books and stories, both reading them, making up my own. And I made up my own games. I like, I wrote my first short story when I was nine on the MS-DOS word processor. And I just really liked books. I really liked writing. And I wanted to be a writer because I loved books so much. And later I became a little disillusioned with all that. So I stopped writing because I wasn't good enough. Obviously, there are so many good writers out there. I'm definitely not one of them. So I settled, quote unquote, uh, for being one of the people who helps other people getting published, which is also great. It's fine. I mean, I, I love that. But when I started writing again, it was like finding an old friend. It was, it was really inspiring. And I'm very grateful to Good Omens and the Good Omens fandom because they gave me a story to tell and a playground to play in. Was it Good Omens that actually brought you back into writing? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so that's fascinating. You stopped writing for 10 years and Good Omens brought you back. Yes. Yes, oh my god. Indeed. Okay. So I'll be lighting a candle tonight in thanks <laughs> to the patron saint of good omens for bringing you back because <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> we will light a candle to Nick Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Thank you guys for bringing us Mademoiselle Kurtz back into the writing game because we have absolutely benefited from that. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. So it sounds like you were really imaginative as a child. Right? Yeah. And it sounds like you were probably making up stories in your head when you were little. Yeah, yeah, I did that all the time. Yeah, yeah. When I wasn't reading, I was like playing outside, making up my, my games uh, and so on. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I'm at ease with loneliness. I'm not one of those people who gets lonely because I, I have so many things to do. I have books to read, I have fan fiction to read, of course. And things to write and sweaters to knit. Uh, I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> yes, of course you did. Of course, that's brilliant. That's awesome. And I also love that you mentioned that you've read a lot of books, that books have been important to you. And the reason I mentioned that is because I've read several of your stories by this point. And one of my favorite things that you do and all of the stories that I've read so far you bring pieces of literature into your stories, especially T.S. Eliot, which I just have to tell you, I love T.S. Eliot so much. And every time that you bring lines from his work into your stories, I die of happiness inside because it's so brilliant. Yeah, I am physically unable to not quote Eliot when I write fanfiction. <laughs> this has been brought to my attention before. <laughs> He's like your patron saint muse. Right? Yes. For writing your stories. It's yes, amazing yes. and excellent. Uh, <laughs> do you ever have trouble picking which lines or pieces from T.S. Eliot that you want to include? Actually, I don't because it's the other way around. Lines and quotes jump out at me while I'm writing or themes or poems. So it's not like I don't know where to go. It's like they come at me. Oh, that's awesome. It's almost like he's whispering in your ear, right? T.S. Yeah. Eliot. He's like over your shoulder going, use this one. 
<laughs> more or less, yes. <laughs> I love that. Now, Good Omens, was that your first time writing fan fiction or had you wrote fan fiction before Good Omens? I think I wrote fan fiction before, but like in my early fandom days, like when I was 12, once again, when I was in the Lord of the Ring fandom, so I definitely wrote something and it's lost on the internet and that's for the best. And I think that, no, I'm sure that the first fic I wrote as an adult was actually written in August 2019, so not very long ago. And like I said, I had pretty much given up on writing by then. So having a story pop up in my head and basically writing itself out was an amazing feeling. And finding that creativity again and making something out of it was really great. And of course, it was amazing to have people engage with it because I was nobody back then. Nobody knew who I was because I hadn't written anything. I wasn't really very active in the fandom. So when the first comments started to arrive, it was an amazing sensation. It was really validating. Now, were you nervous at all posting and writing your first piece of Good Omens fanfiction? I was a lot. I'm a very anxious person generally. And yeah, it was daunting because I'm not writing in my first language. And uh, back then I didn't have a native speaker as a beta. I was a bit worried about the reception of it. I mean, once it's out of your hands, you have no power over it. So I was anxious, but not too much. Uh, Like whatever happens, happens. If this flops, it's fine. It's not a big deal. It was just a story. I wrote it. I'm happy I wrote it and it's fine. And uh, it didn't happen. It it was good. The, The reception was great. And the reception for the next one and the next one and... Yeah, it feels a bit surreal at times. That's amazing that your experience was a good one when you came back after your 10-year hiatus and started writing Good Omens fan fiction. I'm curious to know, how were you introduced to Good Omens in the first place? And what do you love the best about it? So, I didn't read the book prior to watching the show. I was actually visiting a couple of friends, both huge nerds that I love very much. And during the time, the TV show came out. And while I was staying at their home, they had me physically sit on their couch and watch the thing over two days. And I started reading the book between one episode and the other. And it was definitely love at first sight. So yeah, this is how I first watched The Rudomans. And I love the humor. It's definitely 100% my kind of humor. And I loved how the story flowed, how different and diverse the characters are. And uh, if we're talking about the TV show, I adored the costumes. The acting was, of course, incredible. And as far as the story is concerned, Aziraphale and Crowley have such a great dynamic, which is uh, something like enemies to, allegedly enemies, to colleagues to reluctant friends, (laughs) to life partners, and I thought it was great. I had that same reaction when I watched it for the first time. You have a leg up on me because I've never read the book. I didn't even know it was a book (laughs) until I watched Good Omens on Amazon Prime. And I just remember sitting there, my jaw dropped open when I watched this because the visceral chemistry between the two characters was just jaw-dropping to me. 
And I had this thought pop into my mind and I said, oh my God, AO3 is going to go crazy. And it did. <laughs> it did. Were you there when it first blew up on AO3? Yes, I was definitely there. The fandom is 31 years old, so it's very old for a fandom. But the TV show has definitely uh, revived it. And it was amazing to be a part of it. And having it be my first real fandom experience as an adult. And I think it's a unique fandom. It has some conflict, of course, because it's inevitable given how large it is and it's huge. But I met so many incredibly skilled and talented, kind and gorgeous and generous people. Some of them are my best friends now, which is something I always be grateful for. And even if I'm not very much part of the fandom anymore, I still have those friendships and my experience has been overwhelmingly positive in it. Yes, that's wonderful to be able to look back on it and say, what a good experience. Yeah. You know, you contributed so much good content to that fandom and made so many good friends. I was shocked at how many incredibly talented writers flocked to the Good Omens fandom because when it first exploded on AO3, I was on the Good Omens tag like every day, all day long you know, just rabidly consuming these new fix. And I couldn't believe the quality that people were coming up with, you know, because sometimes when a fandom first blows up, you get some of the younger, less experienced writers coming in or, or whatever. And that's fine, too. I love those, too. But I was just shocked at how many incredibly talented people came in and contributed to that fandom in such a short amount of time. Yeah, the quality and the quantity was really astonishing. For sure, for sure. I think somebody posted, gosh, I think this was back in 2019, and somebody else in the fandom noticed how big it was getting in such a short amount of time. And I think they posted some sort of stats on it so that they could show us like how many stories had been posted in the last, I don't know, seven days or month or something like that. It was incredible. I was just shocked when I saw it, like, what? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah. I remember that thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I remember that graph. Uh, it was unreal. Yes, it was. It was. Yeah. And I remember commenting on it and just being like, yep, I knew it. I knew it when I sat there and I watched that chemistry. This is going to happen. They don't know what they've done here. <laughs> <laughs> it was unavoidable, pretty much. Yes, it was absolutely unavoidable. But how beautiful, though, because like, it's it's fascinating to me that the show has only two really main characters. Everybody else is kind of a side character. And the side characters are very interesting, too. They're wonderful. But the story really does focus on just two characters. And it's fascinating to me how much variation we get and how many different stories are being told just from the perspective of two characters. It's amazing to me. Yes, because I think the main thing is that there are a lot of blank spaces in their story. They are 6,000 years old, right? I think I'm not messing this up. But there's so much possibility. Like you can have them in so many settings, like Roman times, uh, Victorian times, and it, it can still be canon. Yes, absolutely. You're so right about that, that I have seen so many stories that do go back and they focus on different particular time periods that these two characters would have lived through. And these interpretations are just gorgeous. Yes, I agree. Now, speaking of gorgeous, <laughs> your gorgeous fan fiction story in the Good Omens fandom is, well, you have many, and I've read many, but the one that we're talking about today is An Absence of Stars, 
And this story was so meaningful to a lot of people. I've seen a lot of online chatter about this particular story. People wreck it to others. They talk about it a lot. What is this story about? And what messages did you want to communicate with this piece? Let me begin by saying thank you, first of all. And that I'm still astonished by the wrecks, the art, the comments, and the love that so many lovely people poured on an absence. And this started as a plot bunny, as Zirafel falling in love with his favorite author, Crowley. And from there, I uh, built this story around them. And I had Aziraphale, who is called Fell here, which is uh, his uh, official alias in the book and in the TV show. I had him be a lonely bookseller and Crowley a writer of books about astrophysics because this is an alternate universe story. And Fell is the kind of book snob who loves uh, serious books and despises the lower forms of literature, such as romance novels. And when they meet, when he meets Crowley, he tells Crowley as much. But what he doesn't know is that Crowley is also secretly a writer of a series of extremely popular romance novels under the alias of Madame Storit, which is Crowley's official alias in the book and the TV show. And yeah, that's pretty much where the story starts. Of course, they meet, they fall in love, and I hope they live happily ever after. And the funny thing is that it was supposed to be a short, light-hearted story, and instead it became a 56,000-word bittersweet love story. And if we're talking about themes, I think that what this story is mainly about is the vulnerability. It's about allowing yourself to be loved, even if you think you're unlovable, which is a theme that's very close to my heart. And uh, yeah, in general, it's mainly about love, which is not the most original theme, but a universal one. And it's also about desire, desire for something different, for something more, for freedom, for companionship. And actually, the title, An Absence of Stars, comes from one of the etymologies of the word desire, which comes from the Latin prefix de which indicates a separation, a reversal, and so you can translate it as without. And the sidus sideris, which means star. So an absence of star is actually another way of saying desire. Oh, I love that. That's beautiful because not only is an absence of stars just beautiful on its face, I love to say that line, but knowing the deeper etymology behind it, that's gorgeous. I love that. At what point did you decide to make that the title of the story? Oh my gosh, I don't know. Early on, definitely. I love that you brought up the word vulnerability as one of the themes behind this story because that came through so strongly as I was reading it for the first time. And it made me think of that particular line from Tim Crider's essay, which becomes a running theme in a lot of Good Omens fanfiction, actually. And you see it as a Good Omens fanfiction tag periodically. And that line goes, if we want the rewards of being loved, we must submit to the mortifying ordeal of being known. How was this theme presented in this particular story? <laughs> I love that that line has basically become a tag in <laughs> Good Omens fandom. And yes, of course, being known and being perceived is awful. Who would want that? 
Uh, except you can't actually live, you can't love and be loved without connection, which is, of course, a form of love. And at least that's how I think about it. And I think you can survive with your coping mechanisms, at least for a bit. But love, any kind of love, and not just romantic love, but also fraternal love and friendship and so on, what it's about, it's about being accepted and being loved. This is what keeps all of our broken pieces together, right? And in my story, Crowley is a writer with a secret identity, like I said. And so even if his stories connect with the readers, he's still hiding a huge part of himself from everyone else. And so he's not allowing that part to be seen because he's scared, he's afraid. And a zero fellow, of course, is basically living like a hermit, telling himself he's happier this way because he can't be hurt. He's also scared and afraid. And a zero fellow pieces together the clues and discovers Crowley's secret identity. And after that, it's Crowley who decides, uh, you know what, I can use it himself. And in the time they spend together in the rest of the fic, Aziraphale slowly starts to understand that his old coping mechanisms don't work anymore. And the story is told from Aziraphale's point of view, but you can see that the same thing is happening on the other side, on Crowley's side. And that's it. They both take huge risks and they pay off in the end because they're not alone anymore. They're loved. Yes, yes. Which makes me think of, like you said, profound connection is a running theme in this story, especially. You mentioned in one of the story comments in An Absence of Stars that you believe connection is what saves us, right? Connection is what saves us. How did profound connection save and change these two characters? Because you're right, they both start out disconnected and a little repressed, if you will. Yes. And then by the end of it, that connection saves them. Can you expound on that for us a little bit? Yes, of course. I have many thoughts and opinions about this, actually. I've always had books as my friends when I was young, and even now, actually. And like I maybe already said, I've always been a kind of lonely person. And 2020 has been weird for lots of people, but honestly, my lifestyle didn't change very much. But even when I'm by myself, I'm always thinking about my friends, someone else. I always have Discord or WhatsApp or Tumblr open. I'm always sending memes or pictures of my dog to friends or scheduling Skype calls or D&D sessions. And there was a time several years ago where I felt very alone and disconnected from everyone else. And it was a very bad period of my life. And if anyone has gone through that, they know what I'm talking about. And you know the Don poem titled No Man is an Island? And he said man, but of course we must extrapolate it meant person, etc., etc. No one is an island, and I really believe in that. And uh, part of the reason I felt that disconnection back then was because I hadn't maybe found the right people yet, I haven't found my friends yet, but also because I had, I always had an armor on. And To find real connection, you have to ditch that. You have to allow yourself to be vulnerable and prone to be hurt. And like I said before, speaking of Fell, of Aziraphale, 
sometimes the armor is useful. Sometimes there's, there's a reason it's there, but sometimes it's a hindrance. And sometimes you get hurt when you're without your armor, but sometimes it pays off. And yeah, so talking about connection, it's interesting to me because I didn't start off writing them this way. But Aziraphale knew Crowley before he knew, he really knew him, right? Through his books. And he loved part of him, the, the books that, that Crowley wrote under his name. Aziraphale loved them and thought Crowley was a kindred spirit, right? But he didn't like the other books Crowley wrote, the romance novels, even though the, the author was the same person, right? So I don't mean to trivialize this kind of connection because, like I said, I grew up with so many paper and ink best friends, but I don't believe you can claim to know someone just because you read what they wrote. Because not only you don't know how much the writer is projecting, how much they're making up. This is an, a starting point, an important starting point. Because all writing is in itself revelatory, right? Any act of creation shows the end of its creator, at least a tiny bit in some form. And this is a kind of connection as well, but it's not friendship, it's not a human connection, it's one way. And the way their connection in the fic uh, develops mirrors this in the sense that once they get to know each other, you can really see the difference from the first kind of relationship based on books to the other authentic connection from human to human, which is two-sided and three-dimensional. Which had the first one as a starting point, but developed in something more complex and maybe even more interesting to read about. Oh, I love how you expanded on that. I love that it relates all the way back to that mortifying ordeal of being known. Because, you know, with these characters, I think both of them felt like they had parts of themselves that they felt like weren't worthy of being known. They were afraid of those parts being known to other people because they didn't like it in themselves for some reason, you know. And that's a whole nother bag of tricks. But I love the way that in your story, these two characters eventually end up exposing those quote unquote ugly parts of themselves to the other person thinking that they're ugly and they're not worthy of love and nobody's going to want to see this side of me. And then there's those moments of surprise when they realize that, hey, actually, like, this part of me is lovable and it is worthy and it is valid and there's nothing ugly about it. Like, it's just part of me, you know? And how beautiful and connecting and freeing that is to be able to bear your whole self to another person and they accept all of you not just the parts that you want them to see, right? Yeah, yeah, we've all been there, I think. We've all thought some parts of us were too ugly to show other people. But yeah, if we're lucky enough, we meet people who don't mind, who actually love those parts of us, which we don't. Yes, you actually said something really profound in this story. I, I think it was Fell talking or thinking or something. And he is expounding on his thoughts on love. And he describes falling in love as an act of faith. Because as you're exposing all of these parts of yourself to another person, you're having that faith that they're not going to turn away from it. And they're going to accept it. And they're going to love you. All of you. And I just thought that was so profound. Like, you're right. <laughs> love is an act of faith. But when we 
put ourselves through that terror of being known for the first time, that's when we do find that connection. And I agree with you, that connection saves us. Yes, definitely, yes. When I was reading through this story, I couldn't help but spot things <laughs> that felt like metaphors to me. And I'm one of those people that, okay, I studied a lot of English literature in university. So my mind just naturally, instinctually wants to overanalyze everything, right? Same. So, <laughs> so I saw so many things that felt like metaphors to me, like Aziraphale's bookshop. The way that you describe it in the story was such an apt metaphor for how he conducts himself in his personal dealings with other people, right? Mm-hmm, he yeah. is kind of reserved, repressed doesn't try to reach out and connect to other people too much. And the bookshop, the way you described it, reflects that. And I was like, oh my gosh, the bookshop is Aziraphale. <laughs> oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the bookshop is definitely meant to be uh, part of himself and also to symbolize his comfort zone, a safe space uh, for him and for anyone else who, who wants to join him there. And safe spaces are cool because they're safe. But sometimes you have to step out of them and uh, for good things to happen. And this is what happens to him. This is what he does. He steps out. He changes. He, he steps out of his comfort zone. And thanks to Crowley, which is a, not a temptation here, but an outstretched hand, maybe. And Crowley also becomes his comfort zone. Later, he makes him feel safe, but in a completely different way from the sheltered way his bookshop worked as a metaphor for. Well, and I loved that you could track Aziraphale's progress in this story based on what was happening in his shop. Because before he makes that more profound, deeper connection with Crowley, he does open up his bookshop to a book club with new people. And for the first time in a long time. He's inviting new people into his comfort zone, into his safe space. And I feel like that almost prepared him to reach out, right? Have that faith to reach out to Crowley later. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I always try, even when I write uh, romantic pairings, I always try to have people reach out in other way. Uh, make other kinds of connection, like uh, the found family, <laughs> much beloved trope in, in this fandom and, and in others as, as well. That was definitely intentional. Oh, good, good. Yeah, because I saw so many others like, okay, folks, we know this is a mature story. So later on in the story, obviously, Aziraphale and Crowley end up romantically involved together, which means, you know, you're eventually in a situation where you're taking off your clothes. And there was that moment when Fell takes everything off and he's completely bare. And I felt like that was such a metaphor because that's what he's been doing this entire time, you know, stripping off layers of himself in front of Crowley. And that was just kind of like, I don't know, it felt like such a metaphor to me (laughs) that first time when he does that. I was like, oh, finally, that's so great. And then there were those scenes with the sea, which were just, oh, my God, beautiful. I love the sea, first of all. So anytime a story has the ocean in it, I die because I love the ocean. But the sea was just, you know, it was almost like they were standing in front of that sea. And that sea was ah, like a metaphor for everything that they've never done before. If that makes sense, like they're standing at this precipice, knowing that they can step into that water, step into that relationship, step into something greater between them. And all they have to do is jump in. That's great, actually, because 
there are definitely many, many metaphors and many layers of meaning that I attach personally to the sea. But this wasn't one I realized I did. This is definitely what's happening in the fic, <laughs> but I didn't realize I did that. So Yeah, I love the sea as well. I, I really love it. I grew up near the mountains, so the sea, bodies of water in general, have always been something magical and alluring to me. And there is so much poetry about that, and especially from Elliot, <laughs> once again, <laughs> whispering over my shoulder. Yes, the lines that you included in that sea scene just broke my heart in all the best ways because they're so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I definitely quote uh, Prufrock in uh, in that scene. I'm sure I quote The Wasteland at some point. I quote The Four Quartets. Burns Norton. There is actually another poem Elliot wrote about the sea, which is the third part of The Four Quartets. Each of the four quartets represents an, el- an element, right? Uh, uh, fire, earth, water, and air. And the dry salvages, which is the part three, is centered around the water and the sea, and which, uh, with a very convoluted, prophetic, allegorical language, is all about accepting that we don't know the meaning of life while we live, while we're alive. We're not supposed to know it yet, but eventually we will. And the imagery is very Roman Catholic, unfortunately, but in general, it really resonates with me. And it's all poetry about the beginning and the end, about how they're the same, about what's in between, about past and present, about finding hope in hopeless times. And the sea is the fil rouge, right? That runs through it all. And every time the sea pops up in my writing, it carries with it all these and, and more like I've just found out. Yes, yes. Oh, and I love, I love that poem by T.S. Eliot. I love that because, you know, sometimes I feel like we run around and we're screaming into the void. What is the meaning of life? What is this all about? And to have someone say, it's okay to just sit quietly yes. and not know. The exploration that happens in that space in between is the meaning. And that's okay. Yeah, and it's very relevant, maybe. It's very relevant that all this pops up when my characters are in front of the sea in almost everything I write. I love that. There are so many metaphors with the ocean and the sea that, oh, it's brilliant. So I was hmm, completely enamored by the fact that your story presents two characters that are very broken in their own ways. You know, there are a lot of stories like this, which are wonderful stories, where one broken character is being comforted and healed and led along by another stronger character, which I love those stories too, I do. But this one gives us two broken people who are actually very much the same inside, (laughs) even though they're different. And it's beautiful that they're able to find comfort and strength in each other. And I loved that dynamic because to me, it felt so real. Because in real life, you're never going to have two perfect people getting together. It's always going to be two imperfect, broken people who are just, you know, they reach out to each other and they find that connection and they make the best do that they can. And I thought that was very real and beautiful. Thank you. And yes, I agree. It's definitely mutual in the sense that, like you said, they are two very broken people who end up relying on each other and the healing that they had to undergo is mutual. And this dynamic is, is really appealing to me, uh, the narrative foil dynamic. 
So yeah, thank you for pointing that out. I also wanted to say one more thing. Let's see if I can express this in a way that makes sense. There is a line in The Absence of Stars where Fell is talking about his experience being romantically with Crowley. And he says that he remembers his struggle with his sexuality growing up, right? Growing up, I'm sure that that would have been a very difficult topic to discuss and also just a very difficult topic to live through, discovering sexuality. And he says something along the lines of, I didn't know that this type of ending was possible for people like me. And I thought that that was so profound because, you know, I've talked to a lot of older people in the LGBTQ community who remember the 70s and 80s and remember it as a very dark time where the thought and the idea around homosexuality was all you're going to get is diseases and all you're ever going to get is a sad ending. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And that's how it was portrayed in media. That's what people would tell people with different sexual preferences. And for a long time, it was just this depressing era where there were no happy endings for people like that. Yeah, that's true. And that's one of the reasons why I think that fan fiction is so important because fan fiction gives us these beautiful stories like you gave us where they have happy endings. You know what I mean? Like that happy possibility because that's more real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nowadays, for sure, yeah. And I was thinking about, I don't remember if I listened to this interview before or after I wrote that part, but... You know that David Tennant has a podcast and he interviewed Ian McKellen at some point and I invite everyone to go listen to that interview because he touches on these themes and it was sad but necessary and most of all hopeful. It was a great interview, which I I think I listened to it before writing that part. I'm not sure. But yeah, it definitely informed my way of looking at these issues, definitely. Absolutely. So that's why I just think that stories like yours are so important because they give that representation in a more real way that the messaging doesn't have to be that there's no hope for you. The messaging doesn't have to be that there are no happy endings for you. There are happy endings for you and they're right here. Yes. In these lines, in these stories that you guys are producing. And I think that that's so important to have storytellers like you and others who are giving us happy endings which is just beautiful. So thank you. <laughs> thank thank you, you for bringing this to our community and to, uh, to people who need to see that. What were some of your favorite reactions to An Absence of Stars? I was reading through the multiple, you know, hundreds of reactions that you got in the comment section. I read through all of them. It was beautiful. So I was just wondering, what were some of your favorite reactions to this? Wow. So uh, it's, it's unreal. It's been uh, more than a year since I finished this. And people are still commenting on it, are still telling me how much it meant for them. And right now it's happening. And I'm honestly blown away every time. It's good, it's great, but it's completely, it was completely unexpected when I first started writing it. And I remember a friend wrecking this fic on Tumblr and saying it made them think about gender and about being closeted and... That was really humbling because um, I was a bit hesitant about having Crowley undergo some sort of a gender journey, if if you can call it like that. 
but being reassured about that was very nice. And so many people have reached out. They made fan art of it. And there's a chapter I'm especially proud of where the narrative is non-linear. Chapter 8, I think it was. And there's a small plot twist in the end. And I was so anxious it wouldn't work. And then there was a comment that went like, this chapter is what made this fic go from good to great for me. So that was really, really, really good to read. And someone told me they started reading Elliot because of my fix. Oh, good! (laughs) (laughs) Which made me so happy. I I don't necessarily recommend, I don't necessarily think Elliot is the best poet or the only poet I would recommend. But like we said, it's very important to me personally. And so, yeah, that was great. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, it just seems like your story really hit people in a lot of different ways and people really reacted to it and resonated with it, you know, with the different themes and the story. And it was just, God, it was gorgeous. I loved it. These days, you're more actively writing for the Critical Role fandom, right? Yes, I am. For those of us who don't know what Critical Role is, can you explain what it is very briefly and tell us how you discovered it? Yes. Uh, So Critical Role is a web series what some people call an actual play, uh, role-playing game, where eight voice actors, and sometimes joined by guests, sit around the table and play Dungeons and Dragons in front of a camera every Thursday night. And uh, yeah, they wrapped up their first campaign in late 2017. They started out in 2015, recording uh, a campaign they started like two years before that, uh, for those who don't speak D&D, a campaign is basically a series of quests or stories that a group of adventurers of players go through. And they started their second campaign in early 2018, uh, which is still ongoing. And I haven't been in this fandom very long, even if I discovered Critical Role and started catching up on all the episodes in March 2018. Uh, I just heard about it online, I thought it was cool. I have actually been playing D&D on and off since I was 17, so I was definitely interested in, in watching other people play it. And there it is, I started watching it and here we are. And I know it may seem a bit daunting at first, because there are hundreds of episodes and each episode is like at least three hours long. Oh, wow. Yeah, but it's worth it. It's engaging, it's experimental, it's fun, it's really fun. It's really sad sometimes, you cry a lot, but it's amazing, it's great. I've never played D&D myself, but I'm a little bit familiar with how it works. Is that normal to have a campaign last that long? Yeah. Really? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think there are campaigns that have lasted years and years. It hasn't happened to me, unfortunately, because I have always played with different people and different groups. And real life is hard sometimes, so you it's hard to, sh- to schedule this kind of thing when you're an adult and you have a job. But yeah, they're lucky. It's their work now, basically. And so they can go on as much as they like. Oh, that's wonderful. That sounds really incredible to keep up a character for that many years in a campaign. That's incredible. That sounds so interesting. So that means that because the campaigns are so long ongoing, you have a lot of time then to really get to know these characters individually on a deeper level. Yes, yes, yes. 
both you and the actor who plays the character become very attached to to them so yes it's really nice it's similar to acting but not quite because you're not acting someone else's character you're acting your character so yeah it's it's fun it's really fun it's great dnd is great to play but it's really fun to watch as well yeah no absolutely and how cool is that that there's a whole series with you know these ongoing campaigns that must be so fascinating and it sounds like the characters that they have in those particular campaigns are particularly compelling. Your critical role stories feature the shadow guest pairing between Essek and Caleb. What do you find most compelling about this specific pairing? Okay, so anyone who talks to me for more than five seconds know that I have a soft spot for this kind of anti-hero characters. Sad quiet, conflicted, probably depressed characters, especially if they're sad wizards with fire powers and like a dark past and if they like cats. Think Anders from Dragon Age, for example. I also love characters who are lonely, arrogant, nerdy, who end up maybe paying a huge price for their hubris. And think once again uh, Soros from Dragon Age. I'm not drawing explicit parallels here, obviously, but Caleb and Essek uh, fit effortlessly in these two categories for me. And I also think that together they're more than the sum of their parts. Because once again, they're narrative foils, they mirror each other, and the actors act off really well of, of each other. And you have to keep in mind that critical role is all in improvisation, it's all improvised. And the cast is really good at it. And these two actors especially have a really good chemistry. And there is so much tension between them, between the characters. I mean, because I'm not going to be too spoilery here, but something huge happened a while ago. A huge betrayal ha has happened. <gasps> between those? Mm -hmm. uh, they haven't addressed it yet. So we're all on the edge of our seat to see how they will solve this. Okay, now, do Essek and Caleb start out antagonistic towards each other and then build into a friendship in canon? Or how, do, how is that working? Initially, the campaign was supposed to take another direction. And Essek was supposed to be, we think, there, there are really strong hints that Essek was supposed to be an antagonist. But the players chose another route. And... He started off as an ally instead. So it's really fascinating to see uh, some facets of this character who was meant to be, to oppose the party, right? To be an antagonist. And instead they're played in a positive way, I, I, I would say. Yeah, so they, they don't start off as, uh, as enemies. It's not like an enemies to friends to lovers dynamic in canon. But yeah, there are elements of that. Oh, awesome. What kind of chemistry do Essek and Caleb have in canon? <laughs> They're narrative foils. They mirror each other a lot. And they really hit it off because they're both wizards. They're both the kind of nerdy, only Caleb is Essek maybe. It's more suave, right? Ah, so they do have that common like starting ground. Yes, and Essek was uh, Caleb's teacher. He taught him a few spells. 
and the fandom and the cast as well started shipping them right away. It was very fun. Yeah, so everyone thinks the wizards should kiss. <laughs> yes, kiss, 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 kiss. <laughs> and talk, and talk to each other, maybe talk first. But yes, they're, they're very conflicted and dramatic. And as I said, the narrative falls so that they really complement each other. And I think that if they can be friends or even something else, maybe, they could really help and support each other. And one of them already has a fun family. The other really needs one. So it's just convenient at this point. So, yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. You are writing currently for Critical Role. You published this gorgeous 40,000 word Critical Role one shot back in January called Fundamental Forces Other Than Gravity. What is this story about and what made you want to tell it? So Fundamental Forces is about a grad student, is another uh, alternate universe story, is a college AU, and is about a grad student, Essek, who is very arrogant and cold at first, who meets another student of astrophysics, and the kind of magic they do, Essek in particular does in the game, has a fanon equivalent in astrophysics. People have decided that that's what the Essex magic is in the real world. And so there's both students of astrophysics and they really hit it off. But unfortunately, neither of them knows how feelings work. So they end up being friends with benefits at first until a very bad thing. I'm trying not to be too spoilery. Until a very bad thing Essex has done in the past blows up in his face and jeopardizes everything they have. This fic was really fun to write because I had to do a ton of research on a lot of topics I'm not familiar with. I had a physicist friend uh, explain astrophysics to me like I was two. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we had like a three-hour long Skype call at some point. And since Essek has a chronic illness in this fic, I asked another friend to share their experience with this kind of chronic illness and they obliged. I'm so grateful to them for what they taught me. And sometimes it really takes a village to <laughs> write a 40k one shot. <laughs> and this is very much another story that wanted to be written. Everything started with a scene. The first time the, the main characters sleep together and I built everything around that. And... I think that this story too is about love and connection, I guess, because both main characters, like I said, don't know how feeling works. And they believe they, they believe themselves to be unlovable. And this emerges very clearly in the first honest conversation uh, they have about their relationship. And I think that having them be together in a relatively low-pressure setting of a Friends with Benefits arrangement, actually gives them the chance later on to really get to know each other and eventually realize they've been in love with each other all along. And once again, this is a story also about friendship because Essek also becomes friends with Caleb's friends. Like I said before, Caleb already has a fun family and Essek really needs one. And so he ends up with this support system he has lacked for all his life. 
given that his family has basically rejected him. And so that was really fun to write as well, because Caleb's son family is, of course, the rest of the, the adventuring party in the D&D setting, in the canon setting. And they're all amazing characters who I love very much. And it, they were really, really fun to, to write about. And you did such a great job doing the characterization for all of these different characters that came into the story. I know nothing about them, but I felt like I got a really good, solid taste of who these individuals were just by the way that you presented them in the story. So it was just beautifully done. That's great. Thank you. That's really great. Now, this story is told entirely from Essex's point of view which I really felt was a exceptionally beautiful choice because we get to see him puzzle and fumble his way through this experience of finding connection with other people for the very first time. And you make it abundantly clear in this story that connection is something he's entirely unfamiliar with. He's never had a found family. He hasn't really had a lot of close friendships right? Most of his interactions with other people are academic or professional and not necessarily friendly, <laughs> right? Yeah. So we get to see his frame of mind initially before he starts forming these connections with Caleb and Caleb's found family. And we get to see his thought process through this whole ordeal. And I loved that because I feel like I see so much of myself in Essex, <laughs> just in the sense that like, the way I grew up, but I won't get into it, but I lacked a lot of human interaction when I was a little kid and up into adulthood. And sometimes I can be painfully awkward when it comes to social interaction and connection with other human beings, not because I don't want it, but because I don't always understand it or understand how to get it or understand how to act appropriately when I'm in a social situation with other people. And I could just feel like, viscerally feel Essex discomfort in that. But I was so impressed by the way that even though it's discomforting to him and unfamiliar, he still proceeds with it and just fumbles his way awkwardly through these different relationships and these different connections. And it was just wonderful. Thank you. And yes, the same hat as the kids say these days. I definitely put much of myself in Essex as well. And, like, he's a lonely kid who grew up to be a lonely adult who only cares about himself, basically, and is still learning how to people. And all this definitely rings a bell. And the awkwardness and the fact that he's basically like a cat in some ways. He mm, doesn't ask for affection when you people give it to him. He finds out that it's actually nice to be loved, and cared for and I tried to convey his initial aloofness and selfishness which uh, we can see in canon and then to mirror his canonical development into a more caring and conflicted character because that's basically Essex's story arc so far and he's learning how to be a person how to have friends how it feels to fall in love in a relatively short amount of time as far as canon is concerned, we are still speculating about the falling in love part, but I mean, it's basically there. And uh, I tried to make him talk and think in a very detached, analytic way at first, to reflect the way he's initially very diplomatic and put together in canon, 
and then to be more earnest and open, even if it takes some effort to unlearn what has effectively been a coping mechanism for all his life. And as for the differences between my ESSEC and Canon ESSEC, uh, like I hinted at before, I had to speculate everything concerning the happy ending for these two, because the actual story is still ongoing. And there are ob- the obvious differences that uh, arise when you put a character in another context when you write an alternate universe. Oh, I love that. I loved also, and I don't know if this was intentional or not intentional, but I read An Absence of Stars first, and then I read your Critical Role story, and I was just struck by how there were similar themes in it. Like you said, you know, that vulnerability, that learning connection, and also the astrophysics part, because you do get a little bit of that with your Good Omens story, and then it came up again in the Critical Role story. And I thought, oh my God, this is beautiful. Like they love writing about these different things here and it's absolutely gorgeous. So I have a favorite line and I I say line, (laughs) but I really mean (laughs) paragraphs. I have some favorite paragraphs from Fundamental Forces because I felt like this was a poignant moment in your story. And the paragraphs go like this, and this is from Essex's point of view. And it goes, when he was a child, Before he knew better than to keep his curiosity to himself, he used to ask annoying questions to the adults around him. Why do things fall down and not up? Why can people walk on the ground but not on the walls? He quickly turned to books, which didn't scold him for his curiosity and were often more thorough. When he learned about gravity and a library book he took from the grown-up section, he felt like the first man on the moon. A whole universe opened up before him, literally. That's what falling for Caleb feels like. It took him a long time to recognize it, but the sensation of being on the cusp of a discovery, of opening a mechanism and observing the turning of the gears, that's what makes Essek feel alive, and that's how Caleb makes him feel. And I loved these two paragraphs because sometimes in a story, an author puts the moment of discovery and the moment of change, and I felt like those two paragraphs were literally describing that paradigm shift for Essek. And to me, that moment of change and shift in perspective is one of the most sacred moments in human experience where everything changes because our perspective changes. You know, I don't feel like Essek really understood that what he had done was wrong or had terrible consequences because he didn't have the human connection to know or care much about the consequences of his actions, right? And they don't become relevant until he makes those connections. And suddenly, those connections are what make him a better person, more evolved person, because now he understands, oh shit, there are real human consequences to these decisions. And now I have feelings about them, where before he was just kind of detached. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. Yeah, that's exactly it. And that's what, that's what happens in canon as well at some point. It's like you said, it's a, a paradigm shift. Yes. Oh, and I love those in stories. They're some of my favorite moments. What were your favorite lines from Fundamental Forces? Okay, first, thanks for quoting those lines, because they're also very important to me. Thanks, really. I really wanted to sum up his journey and how he's in a place where he can admit he cares. So, yeah, it's it's really this, this moment of uh, come to Jesus moment, right? And my favorite lines... <laughs> 
there are a couple of paragraphs in the first half of the thing where Essek muses about how it would feel to have a genuine relationship with Caleb because he thinks that all he could ever aspire to is something transactional, you know? And uh, he goes, uh, he thinks about how it would feel to wake up with Caleb every morning, to spend time with him without having to look for an excuse, to reorganize his schedule, maybe share a calendar, all things that require effort, but isn't he already doing several of them without considering it a sacrifice? And this is another theme that pops up every so often in what I write. The fact that being with someone leads to having to make compromises. But when you find the right person or the right people, they don't feel like a sacrifice because that, that person or those people are worth it. And so, yeah, I, I really like these lines. Also, the sharing a calendar part, uh, I really feel it. Because that's like the ultimate bonding experience for me. It's very romantic in a nerdy sort of way. So yeah, I think this is one of my favorite paragraphs in this film. It is romantic. You know, I never thought about it until you actually said that. But it is. When your lives are so enmeshed in each other that you're making accommodations for them here, they're making accommodations for you there. And it's that sharing of a life, of space, sharing space with somebody else. It's so deep and romantic. Yeah, the day-to-day romance. Yeah, yes. yeah, I really like yeah, that. Exactly. Now, I know that in the writing process, sometimes there are scenes or lines or ideas that make it into the first version of the fic and then later get cut out for whatever reason. Were there any cut scenes or parts from this story that didn't make it into the final version that you wanted to talk about? Yes, actually. There are several scenes that ended up on the cutting room floor. I'm not going to talk about many of them in in detail because I think I might find a way to write them into a possible sequel, maybe. Ooh! (laughs) I hope. I will say that there's a character called Molly Mock, Molly for short, who is very beloved by the fandom and who was supposed to be there as as well. And he didn't because the thing was already 40,000 words long. And uh, throughout the fic, there are little moments Essex shares with all of the the group, the Mighty Nine, right? The Caleb's family, including one with a character named Beth at the kitchen table where they talk about Caleb and about trust and about how Caleb doesn't allow himself to open up to the people he cares about until he's really comfortable with that. They have a little heart-to-heart. And that part was going to be longer and include them playing video games. But the scene didn't really fit the mood of it. And so I ended up with something more subdued, something a bit different. And... This goes for almost every scene Essex shares with the other characters who are not Caleb, actually. I had whole scenes instead of paragraphs sometimes because they were important. I included them because they were clearly important for his journey. They took away a bit of what I wanted to focus on. That's beautiful, though. And I can totally see how you would have had more expansive scenes that didn't make it in, especially with the Mighty Nine, right? Because there are so many of them, and they're all so different. I just love how different they are from each other. It seems like Essek has his own little special type of relationship with each one because they are all so different. 
And so I can totally see how he would have all these moments with these different family members of Caleb. That's so interesting and fun to explore. So I'm kind of excited to hear that you might be using some of those cutscenes for yes. <laughs> some new projects. <laughs> so that'll be exciting. Yes, I hope so. It's still very much in the works for the moment. But yeah, I hope uh, I can write something with that. How perfect. It has been, let's see, you wrote this in January of 2021, right? You posted it? I posted it in January. I actually wrote it in uh, between November and December. Oh, got it. So November and December, and then it was posted in January. What have been some of your favorite reactions to this particular story? So the first reactions I got were actually from my beta, Katie, who is now a dear friend. And I met her through this week. And she's uh, amazing. And... Her, her comments were really encouraging and they were definitely one of the reasons the fic ended up actually being written and posted. And, you know, those comments which quote lines from throughout the fic and comment on each line, the live blog comments, I adore them, who doesn't? But I thought I wasn't going to have any for Fundamental Forces because it's a 40,000 words one shot. And it's a bit long to comment uh, line by line. But I actually got a couple. A couple of people wrote a comment that was almost as long as the fic itself. And that was really, really great. And I also had a couple of very emotional comments that made me emotional in turn about how people read this fic through a rough time in their lives and they cheered them up. And those are really the best comments because I know I have a couple of stories, a few stories I read and I reread since then just at the right moment, which helped me so much going through whatever I was going through. And flipping the script like this, being the one who offers people a means of coping with, with stuff, with life in general. It's really, really humbling and it makes it feel like it's all worth the trouble. Oh, I love that. Also, several people have commented on the vibes of the fic, the intense vibes of this fic, which I think comes from the fact that it was written in what was basically two months long, more or less an interrupted writing session between November and December of 2020. And uh, yeah, this story really wanted to be written. And uh, those made me very happy too. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I was reading through the comments in there and they were all so good and so yes. heartfelt. And people oh my just God. really loved this story, which, you know, I can't blame them because I really loved it too. Thank you. I do want to talk a little bit more about your thoughts on fan fiction in a few minutes. But first, what does your writing process look like? And do you have any writing advice that you wanted to share for less experienced writers? So I don't know that I'm the right person to give anyone advice because uh, my writing process is basically coming up with a scene or an idea, then writing out a very detailed outline of it, and then wildly straying from that outline. So I, this always happens because the story kind of... Um, becomes alive. Yeah, a life of its own. Yeah, it takes a life of its own and characters want to do what they want to do and they don't care about my outline at all. <laughs> but seriously, I think that the only 
real advice I could give to fic writers is to write out of love because we do this because it's fun, because we have stories we want to tell, because we want to create that connection we talk about. And it's not like you're not allowed to care about popularity or about your stats or about how many hits you get. But if becoming popular, quote unquote, is your starting point and your only goal, you're just going to be unhappy because that goalpost is always moving. If you have 10 hits, you want 20. If you have 20, you want 100 and so on. And that finish line is always unreachable because no level of engagement will ever be enough. And so, yeah, we do what we do because we love the source material and we love these characters, we love these stories. And I think that that has to be the reason we do this. Oh, I love that you say that. Because I feel like that theme comes up a lot when fanfiction writers get together to talk about the general nature of fanfiction. I don't know if you've ever been on the Reddit page for fanfiction. I'm on there all the time. And people post constantly all day long. And you do see some people get frustrated with that realization that, oh, I got, you know, 30 hits today and it still doesn't feel like enough, you know, and they'll ask their fellow writers, what do you do with that feeling, right? And you have all these other writers who chime in and say, it's always nice to get validation. And of course, that feels good. But right out of love, right because you want it, right because the story speaks to you, because you have something to say that needs to come out. If you start there, that's the space to be in for any writer, right? Or anybody, actually, I think, who's producing any kind of art. Art is valid and justified in and of itself, right? Yeah, correct. It comes from this place of love every single time. And if you ground yourself there, you're in the best spot. Yes, I agree. 100%. <laughs> kind of piggybacking off of that, speaking of love and fan fiction, one of the comments to this Critical Role story, you replied to it. And in your reply, you mentioned how incredibly precious and important stories are and how they connect us which I thought was just a beautiful testament to the powerful nature of fanfiction storytelling. I have a lot of strong opinions on fanfiction being valid and important, and it matters, right? And so I was hoping that we could close out the interview today by talking about your thoughts and feelings on the powerful nature of fanfiction. Why is it valid? Why is it worthy? Why is it wonderful? So if it wasn't clear by now, I absolutely believe in a story's power to bring comfort and change your life for the better. And this especially goes for fanfiction, which is first and foremost an act of love, like we said, an act of selfless creativity. And I've always personally been drawn to the internet's sharing culture. Like how I mentioned before, my first contact with fanfiction happened because a bunch of old fans in my first fandom wanted to share a fic with us, the youths, and just translated hundreds of thousands of words for us, just out of generosity, and because they wanted to share something beautiful with us. And in another life, I was a fansubber, which means that I translated subtitles for free, for the community, so people who don't speak English or whose English isn't that fluent can still watch movies and TV shows. They would have trouble understanding otherwise. And that's also sharing. 
we did that because we loved something and we wanted other people to love it as much as we did. For example, I've also experimented with bookbinding, printing out and binding copies of my favorite fics, one for me and one for the author as a gift. Oh, how beautiful. That's also sharing, yeah. And this is the, the sharing culture that, that I, I love. And the fact that with fan fiction in particular, you get to actually talk to the people who have written your favorite story and you can even become friends with them in some cases. It's really a, a testament to this connection we were seeking. And that's really everything, especially last year when most of us uh, have been forcefully disconnected from our usual uh, social groups, right? And personally, most of my connection to humanity have been online with the friends I've only ever chatted with on Discord or Tumblr and so on. Friends who I met thanks to fan spaces. I think fan fiction is really, is really important in building this, this kind of, once again, of connection between people. Uh, I love that you bring that part up because I, I agree with that 100%. Because of fan fiction, I've met the most wonderful people in the whole world. I feel like I have this connection to people all over the country and all over the world that I wouldn't have known otherwise without fan fiction. Yes. It's just this beautiful connection. And even just the act of you writers posting that story and then us readers reading that story, there is some sort of connection and interaction going on, even just with that. So it's just this amazing thing that connects people. And, you know, I think stories are so important so important for human evolution. So thank you <laughs> for your contribution and for what you do. It's beautiful. Now, I'm sure that over the years you have formed connections and friendships with other fellow fan fiction authors. My last question for today is, do you have any favorite fellow fan fiction authors that you follow? I have so many of them that I'm actually terrified of naming many, anyone. Because as soon as this podcast is over, I'm going to smack my forehead because I will <laughs> definitely forget someone. So what I'm going to do is actually talk about two authors and two fics in particular that are both a work in progress and that I think deserve all the love because they're really amazing and outstanding. Starting with Good Omens, a friend of mine called Princip1914 is writing this fic called The False and the Fair, which is a human AU set in Appalachia. This fic is, is so mature. It deals with deep, important and difficult themes in a, such an extremely delicate and honest way. And I'm a few chapters behind, actually, but what I've read so far is outstanding. It reads like a, a novel. It's really, it's really great. And as far as critical is concerned, on the other hand, there's this author called Dolan Dapple, and a fic of theirs I'm obsessed with at the moment. Its title is uh, Things That Gods Despise. It's an urban fantasy AU that really hits the, the nail on the head as far as both uh, characterization and plot are concerned. And it's really great. It's very adventurous and engaging. And uh, it has 
the it's the exact flavor of uh, urban fantasy that I personally enjoy. So this fic is written for me basically, and it updates regularly, which is also very very nice. And yeah, I, I could recommend so many things. I all everything I've ever enjoyed is in my AO3 bookmarks. But these are two fics I'm I'm really obsessed with at the moment. Thank you for those recommendations. I'll make sure to put the links in the show notes for anybody who wants to check out those stories. That does conclude my questions for today. Mademoiselle, do you have any last words for us? Thanks for having me. Thanks for reading a 40,000 one-shot of a fandom you weren't even in for this interview. Thank you very much. And thank you for everything you do for fanfiction. Thank you. It was all my pleasure. You're a beautiful writer. I can't wait to see what you come up with in the future. Mademoiselle Kurtz, thank you so much for joining us today. You can find their stories on AO3 under their username, The Knitting Jedi. So check out their stories, give them some love. You can find The Fanfic Maverick on Tumblr at Fanfic Maverick Podcast, on Instagram at Fanfic Maverick, and I can be reached at fanficmaverick at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next episode. In the meantime, keep on rolling.